weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior. Emmanuel Church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, friend of sinners. Now here's this week's message. Today's passage comes from Habakkuk 1-1-2-1. The pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw, How long, Lord, must I call for help, and you do not listen, or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing, and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective, and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation, that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles, swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings, and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. Are you not from eternity, Lord my God? My Holy One, you will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook, catch them in their dragnet, and gather them in their fishing net. That is why they are glad and rejoice. That is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things their portion is rich and their food plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, how do you pray? I wonder if we were to listen in at your prayer closet, listen in to your prayers day in and day out. What kinds of prayers do we pray? We pray the kinds of prayers that we pray in our services. We want our prayers here at Emmanuel to be a model for us as Christians actually model biblical prayer life. Do we pray prayers of praise? Maybe as we 
listen to songs of praise. We pray through them. We pray prayers of thanks, maybe at mealtimes. We have a regular time of praying prayers of thanks for God's provision. Do we pray prayers of request, asking God to provide? For honest, that may be most of our prayer life, prayers of request. Or prayers of confession when we've sinned, we come to him in repentance, asking for his forgiveness, seeking reconciliation with him. I wonder if you were to face a trial, if a trial were to enter your life and blindside you, how would you respond when difficulty comes? What is the first thing that you might do? Do you turn to a loved one, trusted friend, counselor? Do you turn to yourself, seek to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and deal with this practically, seeking to fix those problems as quickly as possible with your own strength? Do you respond with worry and anxiety? Do you start to bite your nails? Do you start to worry about all of the possibilities that could come from such a trial as you prognosticate the future? Or do you pray? I fear that when trials come, when we face difficulties as Christians, too often we as Christians don't pray. And it may be, not because we wouldn't want to, but it may be because we don't know how to. We don't know how to pray in a time of difficulty or trial, a time of grief or pain. Maybe that we don't have the vocabulary for it. In our passage today, we get a glimpse into the prayer life of a prophet, the prophet Habakkuk. When we think of prophets, we don't think of people who pray, we think of people who declare, people who prophesy. People who speak for God, they are the official mouthpieces for God, speaking a message that God gives them. Unless you're Jonah and you fight against the one who gave you the message. We think of prophets as those who speak to the people on behalf of God. But in our passage and in our book over the next three weeks that I preach, here in Habakkuk chapters 1, 2, and 3, we see a glimpse into the prayer life of the prophet. And I hope that more than that, we would find words for how to speak to God in prayer, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of pain, in the midst of life in this fallen and broken world. So if you're taking notes, we're going to be looking at Habakkuk 1. We're going to include chapter 2 and verse 1 as well. Our main point, if you're taking notes, is this. As God's people face this broken world, we should pray and we should listen to God. As God's people face this broken world, we should pray and we should listen to God. In our passage today, the prophet prays, asking God to act, wrestling with his sovereignty and even with his character. And it's my prayer that we would Today, as we study this passage, stand in awe of God's justice and mercy and follow this prophet's example, wrestling with God in prayer. We're going to have three sermon points from the text. We have the prophet's lament, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, 
prophet's lament, which is the verbal form of lamentation, if you don't know that word, lament, L-A-M-E-N-T. That's verses 2 to 4. Secondly, God's first answer, that's verses 5 to 11, God's first answer, we're going to look at his second answer next week in chapter 2. Our third point is the prophet's protest. Prophet's protest. So the prophet's lament, God's first answer, and then the prophet's protest. As God's people face this broken world, we should pray and we should listen to God. As we jump into the book of Habakkuk, look there at verse 1 of chapter 1, and we see all that we have in terms of context. What is the context that we're given? The pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw. This is all we have, a name of a prophet. We know nothing else about him. He's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. All we know is that he's a prophet and this is his name. But we can glean something of where he comes from time-wise just based on the prophecy that he's given, vision that he gets from God, as well as his own situation that he's crying out to God from, these prayers of lament and prayers of protest. It looks like Habakkuk is around the early 600s BC, just before the time when Babylon would come and take the southern nation of Judah hostage, bring them in exile back to Babylon. The Chaldeans hear that God talks about, that he tells them that he's going to raise up, are the Babylonians. The Chaldeans was an ethnic group, but by the time of the early 600s, B.C., Chaldea and Babylon were synonymous. Now, 100 years before this, in 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire had come and had done the same thing with the Northern Empire. The ten northern tribes were taken, including their capital of Samaria. They were taken hostage and brought into exile. And these two final tribes in the south were those that were left waiting um, for something similar to happen to them. And in this time, you see here that Habakkuk is looking around Israel and he's seeing all kinds of wickedness in his nation. And he is frustrated with the injustice that is happening all around him. So look there at his first prayer, this point number one, the prophet's lament, verses two to four. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Or cry out to you about violence and you do not save. The prophet Habakkuk has been seeing injustice and violence around him in the nation of Judah. These are God's people. They're supposed to be those who obey God's law, who know God, and who represent God as a city on the hill to the nations all around. But instead of that, what Habakkuk says when he sees, when he looks around this nation, is only violence. Look at verse 3. Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. As he looks around this broken world, what the prophet sees is wickedness, injustice, strife, fights, wrongdoing. 
And he cries out to God with a prayer of lamentation, prayer of weeping, of groaning, of sadness, a cry for help. And he asks two questions. Look there at verse 2. His first question is, how long, Lord, must I call for help? And you do not listen. The first request, the first question in his lamentation is a question of how long, Lord, until you are to answer my prayers? Or in other words, how long will you be silent and not answer my prayers? Notice the bluntness of this prayer. You notice the honesty that we see here in this prayer. He's honest with God. He's grown frustrated with God's patience and God's timing. And then he asks a second question, verse 3. Why? Repeated, why? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Now, there's some wordplay going on here in chapter 1. You have this pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw, verse 1. And then you have him seeing injustice. And then you have God showing him what he's going to do. And so language of seeing, a vision of sight is the language that is regularly being repeated here. If you're doing your Bible reading, this would be the tools that you use for observation. The kinds of repetitive language you see is language of seeing, of, of vision. And what he sees when he looks around is not the just and righteous God at work accomplishing such justice and righteousness on the earth. What he sees is the opposite, injustice, unrighteousness. And what he sees is God not answering his prayers. This causes him to be conflicted. He's wanting to understand why God delays. He can understand why God might delay in bringing justice on the wicked world. They don't know him. Why would he delay in not requiring his own people to obey him? This is how his prayer starts, this prayer of limitation. He's concerned about the wickedness he sees right here in Israel. Now notice verse 4, he's concerned with the law being ineffective and justice never emerging, verse 4. For he says, the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Now when it comes to injustice in a broken world, something all of us have seen to some extent, sometimes the problem with injustice is the problem of bad laws. Bad laws are a real problem. Often laws are contrary to God's standard of justice. And they work against how he would rule if he were in charge. But this isn't the problem in Israel. The law that they have is the perfect law of God. The law that was given from God at Sinai to the nation of Israel as they left Egypt. They have a perfect law. The problem here is not with a bad law or a bad set of laws, but with this perfect law being thwarted and with those in positions of authority not carrying out this perfect law and, in fact, working against it, causing it to be perverted, it says. That's another problem. You may have a nation with good laws, and yet you may have people in positions of authority who work against those laws being carried out, those laws being enacted, or those laws being protected, or those laws being enforced in particular situations. Here, you see Habakkuk lamenting. He laments injustice amid God's people, 
And then he laments that God seemingly does not act upon this injustice. Verse 3a, why do you tolerate such wrongdoing? Why be so patient with such evil? And you notice here that we have a model for us in terms of what to do when we face a broken world, when we face difficulty, when we particularly face injustice. I'm not sure what kind of injustice that you face personally. It may be that living here in in the U.S., here in the 21st century, that you haven't faced it, or at least not to the kind of extent that you can speak about it. In her helpful book on the book of Habakkuk, the writer Taylor Turkington speaks of a conversation with a woman who was being abused by her husband physically and speaks of fear that she had for her children being in the home of such an abusive man. As she introduces her book on the book of Habakkuk, she writes this so helpful. Maybe you, like me, haven't had similar conversations like this. Not once, but maybe many times. If we're paying attention, we will see a lot of things that are off around us in this world. You may have never heard the timid appeals for help in an abusive marriage, but I'm sure that you have noticed things in this world that are unjust. Cracks in the facade that show that injustice is real, that people hurt. Bullies win. That right actions are left undone or wrong actions bring harm. And when we pay attention, we have to acknowledge that this world is gut-wrenchingly broken. She goes on to write this. One, many of us will read a description of mistreatment and we nod along from experience. Memories bringing fire to our chest as we can relate with the difficulties that someone has gone through. Of real harm. Of real injustice. But then she writes... Yet others hear words about injustice, and it all feels distant. And there's a deep desire in some to downplay evil. Perhaps even subconsciously, that's the response, to think, oh, it couldn't have been that bad. Reading Habakkuk, Taylor writes, beckons us to acknowledge a foundational principle that God reveals through Old Testament prophets. You have to see the evil. We must look around at what is happening in the world and see it for what it is. You notice here that Habakkuk is not giving some pristine vision of everything being better than it is. He's not pretending that things are better than they are. No, he sees the evil and he names it as evil. You notice what his first response to such evil is. I love this. He's a prophet. Does he go out in the streets and start prophesying? What does the prophet do first in this book? And it's the only book that begins, in terms of these prophets, with a prayer. All of the other books, all of the other prophet books, and there are many, begin with God coming to a prophet with a vision for that prophet to give. Here, the book of Habakkuk begins not with a a message from God to be sent to God's people, but the prophet coming to God with prayer, requesting help, requesting answers. Coming to God with the injustice of this world and lamenting what he sees and asking God to answer. And God does. Friends, as we think about the book of Habakkuk, 
We must be able to, like Habakkuk, see the evil in our world and name it as evil. We must learn from Habakkuk to know what to do when we see such evil in this world. We must be able to respond to it the way that he does with prayers. Here, that's modeled for us. Prayers of lament. I think we're not good at this as Christians. We're not good at lament. Uh, The theologian Carl Truman wrote an article a couple of decades ago entitled, What Do Miserable Christians Sing? What Do Miserable Christians Sing? It was an insightful little article, you can find it on the TGC website, in which he says that Christians may not be overtly buying into the prosperity gospel, but there may be some of that prosperity gospel that has seeped in to such an extent that we don't know how to do anything other than be joyful and be happy when we come to church. And he says it seems that we as Christians only know how to be happy and clappy at church and feel that we must put on a facade of happiness, of joy, of smiles when we come to church and pretend like everything is good because we don't know how to deal with real pain, with real hurting, with real trials, and with real injustice. So he asks the questions, what do miserable Christians say? What's his answer? Well, miserable Christians sing the Psalms. If you've ever read through the Psalms, you may find some shocking ones. I mean, we all know the Psalms, like Psalm 150, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. There's lots of songs of praise. But throughout the book of Psalms, there are many other Psalms that are not about praising God, but crying out to God for help. And even having faced injustice, crying out to God for justice against wicked enemies and asking him to enact that justice. What do miserable Christians sing, Carl asks? He says they sing the Psalms. I don't know if you noticed here in our bulletin today, that three of our songs, one is coming at the end, are actually songs of lament. I actually put three songs into our service today that are songs of lament or songs of waiting, songs of trusting in God, even in the midst of difficulty. Can you spot them there? Whatever my God ordains is right. Do you notice these songs are a bit more of a minor key as well? Teaching us to have music in line with such minor notes of weeping, of grieving, of asking God for help. We should, as Christians, be able to come to God with prayer in the midst of such difficulty, in the midst of what this broken world brings to us. What is it that you lament today, friends? I thought about this as I was preparing this sermon. What do I lament? My wife asked me as we were looking over the passage, what do you lament? And I had to think about it. I wrote down some things that I spent time lamenting this week, even as I prepared this sermon, trying to, in my own life and in my own heart, be able to do this, to get better at doing this, to cry out to God prayers of lament. What did I do? Well, I lamented wicked governments, like I tried to model a little in our pastoral prayer. I lamented that the Taliban is in 
a position of authority, that they are the government in Afghanistan now. What a terrible thing. They have free reign to dominate their citizens with fear, with control, with unleashed power. I lamented that the shootings that continue to happen in our own country that seem to be happening more and more often. Senseless slaughtering of innocent lives. I lamented the ruling that came down upon the man a few years ago, 2019, in Texas, who killed 23 people in a Walmart seeking to kill people of Mexican descent. He killed 23 of them. And he was given the sentence of 90 life sentences served back to back. And I thought to myself, that's about the most justice you might get in America today. And it's not just. It's not nearly just enough for what he did. For all of those lives, 23 made in the image of God and all of the people that were affected by it who grieve still. I lamented that. I lamented abortion. It's the Holocaust of our day. The slaughter of the unborn, of the weakest in our society. Little human lives made in the image of God. Of value to, of value to Him. Killed. Day after day. I lamented disease. I lamented aging and Death, these are not natural. They're a part of the fall and part of the curse. I lamented church leaders who abuse the sheep and their flocks when they're supposed to be protecting them, caring for them. What do you lament over? Friends, we should learn, like the prophet Habakkuk, to lament, to go to God with the wickedness and the injustice of this world and ask him to act. Ask him to answer. answer. And ask him, to help us to trust him even when we don't understand his providence. Friends, we should as well as a church, uh, one application before we move on to point number two. We should learn, as we have written in our covenant, to be able to do this with others too. We say in our church covenant that we are to be rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep, grieving with those who grieve. I think we're better at the first. We're better at going to the hospital, celebrating with the Polly's at the birth of new life. We're good at going to the weddings, right? We're good at going to the baby showers. We're not so good at knowing how to weep with, with the woman who's struggling with infertility or the couple who went through a miscarriage. I remember lamenting when my wife and I went through miscarriage went through miscarriage twice in a row before Samantha was born, and I didn't know how to do this, and yet others surrounded us by sitting with us, spending time with us, praying with us, just being present with us, and continuing to ask us, how are we doing? Even after so many seem to have forgotten. Friends, we need to be good at this. Being able not only to lament ourselves, but to be able to lament with others. To sympathize with them, to empathize with them. To help to shoulder the burden of pain. Pain of this broken world. Friends, let me 
encourage us to learn from Habakkuk and learn from the Psalms, to sing and to pray prayers of the miserable Christian. So you see here Habakkuk's first prayer. It's point number one, prophet's lament. Now we turn to point number two, God's first answer that begins in uh, verse 12. Begins in verse 12. I'm sorry, it begins in verse 5, 5 to 11. God then answers. And just to remind us, I'm going to read this quickly. Look at the nations and observe. Do you notice the language of vision? Look. This language of look, he says it again in verse 6. This language of this vision, he is explaining to him, giving him a vision of what's going to happen. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. That is not from God. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles, swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. When they sweep by like the wind and pass through, they are guilty. Their strength is their God. Here is God's first answer. How does he answer it? He speaks and answers the prophet's lamenting prayer. I love this. God, in the book of Habakkuk, responds to his prophet's prayer by giving him a prophecy. The prophet prays. God answers. He speaks. You know, God answers prayer. He answers every prayer. Whether he answers yes, whether he answers no, whether he answers wait, not yet, he always answers prayer. He always hears prayers of his people and of his children. And he loves to hear our prayers. Here we have a picture of God answering the prayer of Habakkuk. Now notice that as God answers, this isn't the answer that the prophet was looking for. God often does that with us. We have nice, beautiful, perfect plans that we bring to God. We tell tell Him about them. We tell Him the things that we want Him to do. So often He doesn't do the thing that we want Him to do. And if He does, not in the way that we want Him to do it. You see here that God is saying that He is going to answer this prayer. He is going to bring justice. He is going to come and he's going to do something in Habakkuk's day that he never expected. He's going to deal with the wicked. He's actually going to deal with the whole nation of Judah. God answers this prayer, not the way he expected. And yet, the thing that he's going to do is good and right and just and merciful. You see, God is never only acting out of one attribute. He is wise. He is attentive to his people, and he is kind, and he is just. And he's not just doing one thing out of one attribute. He's 
doing the right thing out of all of his attributes. And here in this passage, we see that multiple things can be happening in God's plan. God can be justly disciplining his people, which he is doing, and at the same time upholding righteousness. He can also be punishing the wicked with this action of bringing Babylon and also be loving and caring for his people as well as his own name at the same time. And he's perfectly good in doing all of these things at the same time through his providential actions. He had been patient with them, but in his patience he was not being passive. He was being kind, giving them an opportunity to repent. But as they did not repent, he was going to come. And he was going to fulfill the promises he made back in the book of Deuteronomy, where he told them what he would do with the nation. If they were to obey him, he would bless them. And then he said if they were to disobey him, he would bring a curse upon them. And he promised that if they were wicked and disobeyed him, that he would bring other nations to come and punish them. And he would actually bring other nations to come to carry them away. He's fulfilling the promises that he made back in Deuteronomy in this first answer, this promise of bringing the Chaldeans. Now notice here that just because God hasn't dealt with your sin yet doesn't mean he never will. This is Habakkuk's concern. God isn't answering. He isn't acting. He isn't dealing with injustice. Friends, all of us are ruled by a just and righteous God. And all of us one day will stand before that just and righteous God. We will stand before the person of Jesus Christ and we will give an account for our actions, every one of them. And the fact that God hasn't dealt with your sin yet doesn't mean he won't ever. He is patient, but he is meticulously detailed in keeping track of everything that you and I do, everything that we think, Everything we feel, everything we don't do, he's keeping track. And he will one day deal with sin completely and fully. His answer here is one picture of what he's going to do in the end. He is going to deal with the wicked justly. And one day, justice is going to reign over all good and perfect justice. And that is a good thing for those of us who want justice. But it's a bad thing for all of us too because we are all unjust and we will all have to face the justice of a holy God against unjust people because we're all, all of us, Habakkuk included, me included, every one of us here included, all of us are naturally wicked, rebellious, deserving of God's perfect judgment. Friend, there is hope. Even in the midst of a passage like this that talks about God's judgment upon the nation of Israel, there is hope for us because this just God who will one day deal justly has made a way through Christ, through his own son, Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, who came to earth lived the perfect life that you and I haven't lived as, as a man, fully God and fully man in one person. And he died on the cross, taking upon himself the justice that you and I deserve. 
And he did this, taking upon himself the just wrath of God, the kind of justice that the people of Judah only got a taste of. That perfect wrath was poured out on Christ on the cross so that sinners like you and me could be forgiven of our sins. He took the justice that we deserve so that unjust people like us could be saved. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 3, Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That was why he was put to death on the cross. Friends, there is hope for sinners like you and me of our just wrath that we deserve being taken by another so that we might experience through Christ no longer justice, no longer condemnation, but eternal salvation at his merciful hand. Friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me encourage you to turn to Christ even now, knowing that he will keep every promise, whether a promise of bringing justice or a promise of bringing salvation. We can trust him to accomplish his purposes in his perfect timing. Now we have here in this first answer a vision that Habakkuk didn't expect. And in fact, a vision of justice beyond what he even wanted. He says here in verse 5, God tells Habakkuk, be utterly astounded at what I'm about to do. He is raising up, it says, verse 6, a bitter and impetuous nation. The most powerful nation on earth at that point is going to come and it's going to destroy Jerusalem. It's going to destroy the nation of Israel. It's going to gather all of the people and take them off. They are going to have to face a wicked nation coming through a powerful army to destroy their land. This is what's coming for them. The language is shocking. It uses language that's difficult to imagine. He says, verse 7, that they are fierce and terrifying. Strong language. These are people who are a law to themselves, it says in verse 7. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. They're not seeking to be faithful to God or even to their own gods says that their strength is their God, verse 11. In other words, they're so in awe of their own power, they're not even thinking about God. They're only thinking about themselves and what they can do and what they can accomplish themselves. And even though they're guilty and wicked, verse 11, they're going to sweep through. And the way that they've dealt with other nations, they're going to deal with Judah the same way. He says that they come to do violence. He uses language of... Uh, the horsemen that come, they fly like eagles, swooping to devour. It says that they gather prisoners like sand, verse 9. And it says that they mock kings. Rulers are a joke to them. And then verse 10, they laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Let's try to imagine what this would look like. Fortunately, I have an illustration. I was beginning to watch some of Lord of the Rings with my kids. It's like the orcs coming from Saruman at Orthanc, coming to Rohan to destroy the men of Rohan. And they hide in the fortress of Helm's Deep. Do you remember? Helm's Deep, it's always protected us. These walls won't fall, and these orcs come, and they build siege ramps to capture it, and they're about to capture it until 
hope comes. I won't spoil it for you if you haven't read The Two Towers yet. But it's hard to imagine what this was like. And we've been living in a country with, with peace for so long, it's hard for us even to put ourselves in the shoes of someone like Habakkuk or the people of Judah in this day who are about to face a wicked army like this come to destroy them. And to do this with the wrath of God behind them, empowering them, leading and guiding them. As you look around this world, there are people even today, people throughout history who have faced such terror, such terrifying wrath, the wrath of wicked nations, terrible armies. It's a frightening thing. This is so frightening, as we'll see in his second prayer, our third point, that it's more than Habakkuk bargained for. It's more even than he wanted God to do. It's sweeping. It's complete. This nation is now going to be destroyed. God's own people. Habakkuk is shocked by this. Friends, we must see in this a small picture, a small vision of what's going to happen on the last day. When perfect justice is going to be brought by Jesus Christ, the one who came to bring a merciful salvation, will also be the judge of all the earth who will one day do what is right. And all of us will have to do with him, will have to deal with him. We must see in this a, a picture, a final judgment. We see then an opportunity for us to get a glimpse at God's judgment as we imagine what it was like for these, uh, for these people who were about to face such an army. Imagine all of the people who faced it, the many refugees who sought to run away from it, couldn't get out from it. Friends, we should, even as we look around this world, as we see wickedness and as we see wars, know that God is sovereign in all of it. And he is, even in the midst of war, sovereignly accomplishing his purposes. Now, it's different than what Habakkuk is able to do here. He's able to know what's happening in terms of his headlines, and he's able to know why it's happening. As we look around this world today, we cannot with a one-to-one -one connection say, I know that God is doing this in that place with that war, and it's because of this thing. We can't do that. And yet we can know confidently because of God's word that he is at work sovereignly. In every war, in every time of peace, in every battle, in every nation that's lifted up or torn down, that he is at work accomplishing his good purposes. And as the rest of the book shows us, we can trust him. Well, point number three, the prophet's protest. His second prayer, verses 12 to 17. And we'll include chapter 2 and verse 1 in this. The prophet's protest. We'll see here that this answer is more than Habakkuk bargained for. He asked God to deal with injustice with some wicked people there in his nation. And yet when God deals with this, with his justice, Habakkuk can't handle the answer. Reminds me of the famous line from Hollywood. You can't handle the truth. Well, Habakkuk couldn't. He couldn't wrap his mind around how God could be just in light of the kind of providence that he's bringing. It's more just and harsher than Habakkuk expected. 
And it's going to involve and affect the whole nation, not just the wicked people that Habakkuk had in mind. It's going to involve terrifying things, deportation, displacement, destruction on a massive scale. Jerusalem, the temple, ransacked, destroyed. People will lose homes. All that's familiar will be gone. I don't know if you've ever been in a war zone. I don't know if you know someone who's been in a war zone or a chaotic situation in their country. This is what's going to happen. And Habakkuk is shocked. The difference here is that we have canonized, inspired, recorded explanation behind something that's going to happen, and then Habakkuk's response, his protest. And this is what Habakkuk does. He prays again. He goes back to God. He was confused at the beginning. Now he's even more confused. Look at verse 12. Are you not from eternity, Lord my God, my Holy One? You will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment, my rock. You destined them to punish us. He is shocked by this statement, and he's questioning God's promises to his covenant people. So this question in verse 12, you will not die, or if you look at the footnote there, we will not die, depending on which it is. The question he's trying to sort out is, if God has made these covenant promises to his people, how can I make sense of what he's about to do here according to this vision? And not only that, verse 13, he says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You see here the protest. How could God tolerate an even more wicked nation, the, wicked of, uh, the nation of Babylon? How can he tolerate them to the point of using them as a tool to come and to deal with wicked Judah. They're worse than us, Lord. Here's his protest. Are you going to allow them to continue in their idolatrous ways, to continue to become rich, to continue to have peace for themselves while they cause terror throughout the world? God, how can you be just when you tolerate such wickedness? This is his protest. He's wrestling with God's sovereignty in a broken world. And trying to understand how a good God, who is wise and sovereign and just, allows wickedness to go on. And to allow a wicked nation of Babylon to deal with Israel. You notice here that as C.S. Lewis puts it, God is good, but he's not safe. He's not a tame lion, though he is the king. We want so often a domesticated version of God. We want a sanitized version of God. We want, as R.C. Sproul puts it so helpfully, a version of God that fits with our expectations for him. R.C. Sproul says, although we don't make idols of stone and wood anymore, we are all too prone to take the biblical revelation of God, look at those attributes of God that we find distasteful, such as his sovereignty or his holiness or his justice and wrath, and we set them aside, and then we construct a God who is all love and grace and mercy. In other words, we create a God who is not God. That God is an idol. The only God we are to worship is the God who reveals himself in sacred scripture. And true worship focuses on the whole counsel of God, not on isolated aspects of God with which we are comfortable. C.S. Lewis says something similar. 
talks about God being an iconoclast. I don't know if you know what iconoclasm is. In the Old Testament, God required his people to destroy idols, icons. Icons are images of God. Teaching my children the New City Catechism. Question number eight, what is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first of the Ten Commandments. Two, you shall not make for yourself an idol or an icon, an image of anything in the earth below or the heavens above. But then the New City Catechism asks in question nine, what does God require in these commandments? Well, first, in the first commandment, he requires that we know God and trust God as the only true God. And second, that we avoid all idolatry. Iconoclasm is the destroying of idols or icons. And this happened in the Reformation. As the reformers were seeking to be faithful to scripture, they were tearing down images in Catholic churches. They were being iconoclasts, the destroyer of icons or idols. Well, C.S. Lewis says that God himself is the great iconoclast. As Sproul had put it, we can make for ourselves idols of God by having a picture of him that is different than who he actually is. C.S. Lewis writes, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? He destroys the smaller, more domesticated versions of him that we have in our minds and in our hearts. Versions of God that we can handle. As one book title puts it, your God is too small. What God is doing here in the book of Habakkuk is giving us a bigger version of him than we had naturally, than the prophet Habakkuk himself had, one of God's own prophets. He's helping us to understand more of who he is, and he's teaching us, as he will throughout this book, to trust him. He's teaching us to rely on him and to trust that our good and wise God is just and that he will do what is right. Friends, we live in an unjust world. This world is broken. It was broken from the fall of man in the garden, as our brother Bobby preached just a couple weeks ago. We aren't surprised by the brokenness of this world. We're often, like Habakkuk, surprised at the injustice that happens among God's people, here closer in in the church. Injustice that happens in places where we thought that there would be justice. And this happens when we, even us, even God's people, lose sight of who God really is and of his kingdom priorities. Friends, we need to, as Christians, grow in our knowledge of God for who he really is and seek to have our visions and versions of him shaped, at times destroyed, blown up, reformed, According to his word. And this is one of the reasons that we do expositional preaching. We work our way through books of the Bible. We're in a pause on our series in 1 Corinthians looking at some of these uh, minor prophets, Jonah and now Habakkuk. It's helpful for us to be shaping our understanding of who God is according to his word and not the smaller versions of him that we've created for ourselves. And as we work our way through books of the Bible and listen to God's word, we are able to know him more as he truly is, not simply who we would want him to be.
Well, friends, we should conclude. We have, in the gospel, hope. For at the cross, justice and mercy meet. On the cross, we have perfectly righteous and just one, Jesus, facing injustice for unjust people like us. We might be saved by him and receive from him a righteousness, not our own, but one imparted to us through Christ. And we can then say that through Christ there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, as much as we are in awe of God's just dealing with Judah, we can know because of Christ that even as we, as God's people, face trials and difficulties and look around and experience the brokenness of this broken world, that even as God lovingly cares for us, teaches us, at times disciplines us, shapes us, that there's nothing of hell in those experiences. For because Christ has dealt with all of God's wrath for us, we know that in Christ we will only experience from him not justice and judgment, but love from a loving Heavenly Father. Friends, we have promise that he will keep. He will be to us a loving Heavenly Father. Christ will be to us our perfect bridegroom. We will be together forever with the Lord, not experiencing his justice and judgment, but his mercy through Christ. We need to be then a people that learn to go to God with our prayers and listen to God through his word as we face the brokenness of, of this world. Let's pray that he helps us to do this. Let's pray together. Father, as your people, we pray that you would help us. You would help us to come to you in prayer. That you would help us go to your word to listen to you. So that you would be helping us to look more like Christ when we pass in day. Lord, help us to do this. Our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were encouraged and blessed by the word. We'd like to invite you to join us for Sunday worship. If you would like to know our service time and further information, please visit us online at www.emmanueloc.com. And so, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.